0: This is the Alpha Human Podcast, and I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg. Today's guest is Errol Dobler. Errol is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy and a Navy SEAL who served as assistant platoon commander at SEAL Team 4 and as a platoon commander at SEAL Team 1. Errol later joined the FBI, where he investigated terrorist organizations and also served as a member of the FBI's vaunted New York SWAT team. While at the Bureau, Errol deployed to Afghanistan with the 75th Ranger Regiment as a special agent and participated in extensive combat operations where he earned the FBI's second highest award for valor, the shield of bravery for his actions on the battlefield. Following 13 years of service with the FBI, Errol founded Leader 193 a leadership consulting firm where he has worked with Fortune 100 companies, professional sports organizations, tech startups, and individual executives across a vast array of industries. Now, Errol is also the author of a very fine book, The Process, Art, and Science of Leadership, How Leaders Inspire Confidence and Clarity in Combat in the Boardroom and at the Kitchen Table.
1: Errol, welcome to the show. Lawrence, awesome to be here, man. Awesome to be here. And let me just say in our side conversations, um, I am super excited for this because you are prepared. You read the book. You said stuff to me, so on behalf of all, in the spirit of the Alpha Human Podcast, fucking a Lawrence, I, let's do it, man. I'm ready to go, <laughs> and let's
0: rock and roll. That's strong, Errol. That's strong. We're gonna we're gonna launch this bad boy. Okay,
1: let's do
0: it. Let's do well, I, I t- let me say this. I'll start off by saying um, that I read your book, and I have to say it is one of the more compelling and practical leadership books that I have ever read. And that says a lot because I've read a a lot. I I read a ton. I've read a lot of leadership books. I've read a lot of business books. I've read a lot of books on on selling. Uh, I I am a consumer of this type of material. And yours is one of the few that do not trade in platitudes. Your book is practical, practical, it is methodology, and I walked away saying, wow, there's a lot that I am literally going to take away from this book and use, so you've got something powerful there, and uh, I'm looking forward to spreading the word about it and giving you a chance to kind of talk through some of the, the great uh, techniques and, uh, and components of your process, so we'll get yeah. into it, man.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that. And that is, that is exactly what I, when I wrote this book, that is exactly the reaction that I, w- I had hoped for from readers. Just a real takeaway. And this is not to take away from other books out there being read. Uh, you know, our folks really, because you've written four books. So you're putting it on the line when you write a book. So I, I will never, that's one thing I learned from writing a book. I will never say anything negative about somebody's book um, ever. And, um, but, you know, I, I did want it to be a little bit different. And I wanted it to be very practical, and because it is truly from the blood, sweat, and tears of my life, and all the things I did right, wrong, and otherwise. And as I as I reflected on what I did right and wrong, and I put it together, I, I said, "This people can use this. I know they can." And you know, you have to put some stories in there to back up what you're saying to give yourself some bona fides, a little bit of entertainment. But yeah, I I appreciate that, and that's that's the mark I was looking for.
0: Well, you you hit it in spades. So. Let, let's start um, at somewhat at the beginning. Uh, yeah. I'd love I'd love to go through your journey a little bit in your background, uh, but let's kick off with what led you to join the Navy and then the SEAL teams.
1: Yeah. So I, where are you from, by the way, Lawrence? I'm 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 originally from New York. You got to be, right? Because I'm, I'm from Long Island, right? So it's, you can, we can, we can feel it going on there. there um, it is. So I, yeah, so I'm from Bayshore, Long Island, right in the middle of the island on the South Shore. That's where okay. I grew up. So I, I grew up on the water and I didn't really have, there was people in my family who were military, but I didn't, it's not a military family per se. Okay. And I, you know, my next door neighbors were Naval Academy people. And, you know, I looked up to the uh, older kids in the family and they came by one day and you know, gave me some of the, you know, just one of those books on the Naval Academy. And this is back in the eighties. Right. Okay. So, and so I didn't know anything about the Navy. I didn't care to be honest with you, but I love the water and I'm just flipping through the book and it's cool. And, you know, I'm starting to see the, you know, the, the men and u- men and women in uniform. And then there's this one section, it's literally a paragraph on the seals. They're not even in cool. They're, they're in their UDT shorts, right? The way too like, short shorts. And, and it just was a very nebulous description of what they did. And I just was like, who are these guys? And why won't, why are, and I was just a kid, I don't know, sixth, seventh grade. I'm like, why aren't they telling the truth about this? What are they, who are these guys? Now that left me, I went to the library, went on the card catalog, right? There was an equally vague article about a paragraph on this thing called the seals okay that was it i was that's what turned me on to the seal teams like why are they hiding what these guys doing why do they (laughs) look so cool in that picture right without any gear fast forward i wasn't obsessed with being in the navy i played athletics in college and uh, i was primarily a lacrosse player that's what i ended up getting recruited for um and just you know I just said to my coach one day, you know, I, I don't know where I'm going to go to school. I don't, mm-hmm. it's getting late and I don't have anything, you know, and he goes, well, where do you want to go? And I don't, the Naval Academy just popped into my head. I wasn't obsessed or anything. He's like, no problem. We'll get, we'll call the coach. We'll get him down here. And then okay. that's how I, Naval Academy, uh, really just to play lacrosse. And then when I was there it all came back to me like, oh, that's right, the SEALs, those guys, you know, so right. then, I, then I was pretty obsessed with with getting into the SEAL teams after that, yeah. What uh, What year was this circa? So I graduated from high school in 1986. I went to a year of prep school um, in, you know, the Naval Academy Prep School in 87 and then graduated from the Naval Academy in 1991,
0: yeah. So, so that, okay, great. So about maybe, must be about, four five years after, after that, a book comes out and I look at this book and I kind of had that same feeling you did when I saw this book and it was called Rogue Warrior. Yeah, that's right. Dick Marcinko, right? <laughs> I saw this book with this guy on the cover with that beard, <laughs> that hard as steel look in his eye. And it said Rogue Warrior, right? The the biography of, uh, of Dick Marcinko. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I just bought the book off, off the base of that cover, and I read it, and I was blown away. I, you know, this the, the whole history of the SEALs, you know, what they were about, going back to Vietnam, Frogmen, UDT, all of this stuff. I've been fascinated with them ever since. Uh, you actually went there. You did it. Um, SEAL Team 4, SEAL Team 1, Assistant Platoon Commander, Platoon Commander— so you want to talk about leadership? We're going to get into that because you got some experience there. Um, you you from there, eventually you you end up leaving the seals. I think you had an injury. Is That's that correct?
1: Right. That's right. That's right. Okay, yeah, I, I got injured on deployment. But go ahead, yeah.
0: Okay, so so you so you left uh, left the navy, and you end up going into the private sector, and you become a sales professional. That's right. And not only do you become a salesman, you become a sales professional in one of the harder, um, one of the more challenging forms of selling. And that is copier sales. Copier
1: sales, the Vietnam of sales. Yes, the Vietnam of sales. I
0: know it is. I'll tell you right now. But one thing I do know about copier sales, because I've interviewed tons of uh, guys and gals who have that in their background, the the training, that the you know the 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 good copier sales organizations Xerox you know being obviously one of the majors, but all copier sales they have an incredible process for mm-hmm. selling success, and you get into that in the book uh, about why you actually loved it. I don't yeah. know too many people who loved selling copiers, although I know a lot of people who were successful selling copiers. But you kind of talk about that. You make a distinction between. Loving selling, or loving what you but or or, sorry, loving selling versus loving the environment that was created. Can you tell us a little bit about your your time selling uh, in the business world when you were doing that?
1: Yeah, I'm so happy you're you're bringing this up, and I I thought we might go there given your background in sales. And had I had your sales books, I might have even done better uh, at that time. But maybe I digress. (laughs) So, you know, the distinction is just that. What I tell people is that, you know, clients now and leaders, like you can't, just because somebody may like this job, don't think that they're going to stay just because they like the job. They'll leave. i left the FBI. I love being an FBI special agent, but the environment drove me away. The sales environment, the environment that the leader, and I worked for OSE at the time. Yeah. And that's a It's a copier company. It doesn't even matter, but um, it's a good, it was a good copier company. And the guy I worked for created such a professional environment of predictability that it made it fun to go there. Right. He had, as you said, he had an eight step or nine step sales process, right? That was it. You will follow this sales process. You will not skip a step because if you do skip a step, I'll know because you're going to have a problem in your sales And I'm going to ask you, which step did you skip or which step are you on? So the point was, when we talk about accountability, Mm -hmm. you can't hold someone accountable if they don't know what they're supposed to be accountable to, right? People think of accountability as a consequence, a bad thing. It's not. It's, Lawrence, why did you just do that thing? I just held you accountable. Your answer is a different matter, okay? But just by simply asking the question. So he held us accountable. When I went in there, he'd say, what's, what stale step are you on? I'd say, I'm on five. He'd say, tell me about steps one through four, right? You, you knew that that's what was going to happen. So you didn't even go in there after a while unless you did those things. That made it easy, that made it predictable and it made it successful, okay? Mm. Now, because it was so predictable, because everybody was held to that same standard and he had some professional behaviors that he, you know, he had in there as well. Okay. Um, because of that, we had a wildly successful team. And we had a wildly successful team because he made it very clear what we were going to be held accountable to from a professional standpoint of behavior and from a professional standpoint of here's how you sell your widget in this case copiers. So because of that, our team became friends, we became close, right? There was none of this nonsense that you see in, in, in a lot of organizations. So I talk about loving that job, Not because I love selling copiers. Mm -hmm. Nobody loves selling copiers, right? right? I love that job because of the environment that was created. I was very happy there. And I left there reluctantly, right? I didn't leave because I'm like, let me get out of here. I left because I had so much success, right? You get those other offers. And at the time, software was the big sales thing, right? right? So if you could sell software. So I got an offer from a software company. I had to go, Um, but I, I loved it. And that's why I loved it. And that that told me also that leadership is alive and well, I I was coming from the SEAL teams. And I'm like, what am I going to be walking into? Right. And that was the first thing I walked into. So I was very, very encouraged. Yeah, I was very encouraged.
0: Now, you also rose to to lead your own team for that uh, same company. Mm -hmm. Uh, You talk about that in the book. Uh, And you talk about how you prepared your new team and, you know, kind of putting together, uh, you know, some some rules of the road. We'll get into that, you know, (laughs) um, guidelines for behavior, that kind of thing. Um, And you from there, from the business world, you eventually you take another another sharp turn and you go and join the FBI. Now, now, here's the thing. Because you're doing, I mean, you're doing some interesting stuff. You're having an adventure. Um, would you have, would you have stayed in the, in the seals
1: if you didn't get injured? Yes. Yes. I loved it. Why I did you love, it. why did you love being a Navy seal? You know, for all the reasons, you know, for all the reasons that probably I didn't realize when I saw that very first picture with that paragraph, mm-hmm. I, these, guys are doing something. And they're not even being clear on it. And they clearly don't care. They're not selling themselves, right? They're doing something that they clearly had to put in this book. Mm -hmm. So they said, here, here's our thing. And that just spoke to me. And when I got there, it was more of the same in a good way. You know, this is how we do business, right? So In the steel teams, you know, all my oddly enough, and and you had Jim Galliano on, who's a friend of mine, and he talked about the same experience. Um, You know, he was in the military, but all his combat experience came in the FBI. Well, it's the same with me, except when I got hurt, we got one of the rare ops assigned in the 90s, and it was a ship takedown, and we were just on rehearsal, and that's where I got injured. So we were actually going to have an op. But anyway, it, it was just all of these things about it's very clear what's expected of you. It's not written on, it was never written on a wall. I don't know if they have it written on walls now, but it wasn't when I was there. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a, here's how we do business. And it's not complicated, but you need to figure it out and you need to get on board because if not, we're not waiting for anybody. And it was all around behaviors. Now every, you know, and, and a lot of those behaviors were, they almost contradicted each other, right? Because it was, we had to be, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, w- one of the things I put in there is, you know, uh, being aggressive as a default mode of operation. Right. Right. You know, so given equal set of circumstances where you could just as easily say we're going to sit back. Right. Right. Or go forward. Which yeah. one we, we went forward. Right. Those were behaviors that were just implicit. Right. Given the you know, but on the same time, there was a lot of emotional awareness that I talk about in the yeah. book. Now, we didn't sit around and talk about our emotions. But our emotions were judged all the time, especially as leaders. How are you conducting yourself on the battlefield? Were you keeping your your shit together, so to speak, right? And if you weren't, that would be the first critique. So that's a very soft skill type of thing. Right, You are losing control of yourself. Your voice is getting too loud. You're becoming, you're mumbling your words, right? You need to settle down. That's emotions, right? Those are things that you just had to get on board with planning, detailed planning. You know, the SEALs were, um, I fit in because I like to go against the grain. And, you know, that's where most of the guys in the SEAL teams were. They were against the grain. What separates the SEALs from the Green Brazier Delta? We're all equal operators on, on the ground. I can tell you that. Okay. Right. Um, it's the water right? It's the water that separates us and the ability to operate in the water and the desire to be in the water and the cold. And if you look at surfers or people who buy, you know, the water all the time, they're a little against the grain, right? Um, So I, I just, I just fit in, you know, and I loved it, but that detailed planning process, right? It goes against that, goes against the grain personality, right? We didn't just do stuff. We planned and we planned methodically. You know, so it's, it was all of those things. And I, I had had my next couple things set up. I was ready to go and it just wasn't meant to be.
0: You know, it's interesting you say, uh, cause I've never heard it. It's funny. I've, I've, I've spoken with a fair number of Navy SEALs. I've read a bunch of uh, biographies on, on on SEALs. Obviously <laughs> water is the most, the, you know, the, the most obvious component that separates SEALs, but I've kind of never heard it put the way you just put it. Because it is effing uncomfortable as hell to be in cold water at night, uh, especially in some of those drills, especially when uh, they're trying to drown you in, uh, you know, in uh, training after hell week's over. Um, I mean, that's, that, that, that's in just absolutely uh, superhuman stuff to, to survive all of that. But you, ha, you you know, you say you have to love the water, but you know David Goggins, he hates the he hates the water, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely hates the water. Yet he, you know, he he still became a seal. Maybe because he hated the water, that's what was driving him. But um, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, well, there's different
1: things, and that's you know that's a really interesting point too. I don't know David uh, personally, but I you know I, I'm super proud of his success that he's having as a as a public figure. And and he's earned everything he's gotten right now, and I have heard him say that. Um, but look, different strokes to to a degree. Right. Now I think I think the I think the what I just put over is the large majority of seals. Yeah. I think David would be uh, an outlier from the standpoint of he didn't love the water, but yeah. I didn't love jumping out of airplanes. Right. The, the when I left it when I left when I I haven't stepped on an airplane with a parachute, <laughs> and I don't plan to. Right. Yeah. So. You know, um, you know, who knows? But I would say the overwhelming majority of the of the SEALs probably are more thinking like I am like, hey, man, I just, just get me to the water. I could right? imagine. And that was always our safe spot. Just get me to the water. We'll be safe. Let's find a body of water to hang out in while we're observing because people don't like the water. We're safe here. You know, so it's it's an interesting mindset.
0: It, it is because I, I can't imagine anyone fighting as hard as you've got to fight to be a Navy SEAL if if you don't like the water i mean that's just insane yeah. yeah um okay so you're having a great career as a sales professional you're mm-hmm. having a great career in, in in you know in in the corporate uh, world you take another sharp turn to another adventure and you you join the FBI what's that all about why did you join the FBI so
1: the i was in um so I left, I left, uh, I left copier sales, right. And I went to a software company, a friend yeah. of mine, right. was had. He was a boss there and he recruited me and I came in okay. and sh- about four months after that, they do a complete reorg, right. And you know what happens there. Yeah. So I'm obviously on the chopping block. And I, so I get, I get the cut and I, I call the CEO though. And I say, look, I said, I don't think you, you looked very closely at who you were cutting. I think you looked at, you know, you looked at tenure and that was it. Okay. And he goes, yeah, pretty much. But you've only been here four months. And I said, yeah, but I've got a $2 million deal in the hopper. Okay. And I said, I promise you, if you cut me loose, I will call them and I will tell them and the context that I have that got me in there will ensure you don't get the business. <laughs> and he was like, really? And it was um, it was an Israeli company is, you know, so he appreciated that. That spot, so to speak, okay. you know? So he said, okay. So he said, tell me about it. And he kept me on. Then, now I'm with my new boss, who's furious that I've talked my way back, back into, into the it. company, right? Because he wants to bring all his people in from, you know, just the way it goes, right? So we're in New York City on a sales call. And it's this call that I'm talking about. And, I'm you know, we're going to land it, right? I The people are calling me saying, you're, you're going to be good. And I'm starting to hit it off with this boss a little bit, right? He's asking me questions. We're at a hotel, and the date was September 11th, 2001. Oh my And god. yeah, and so we're in a hotel, and I, you know, we were about two blocks north of kind of where the rubble ended. So I was safe. I'm not trying to make it like, oh my right, god, right, right, right. I was safe, but that's where we were. Right, we were literally. I was in Starbucks. Somebody came running in and going, oh, my God, a helicopter just ran into the World Trade Center. I, you know, a bunch of us looked down and you could see it and you're like, oh, that's terrible. I hope everybody's OK. And then you go about your business. It's New York City. It's what happened. Right. right? And then right. obviously everything was coming more clear. So, you know, the planes go in the towers. I actually call the people. That's how single minded focus I was at the time. I'm a little embarrassed of it, but it's what it was. Right. I called them. I said, hey, I, I don't imagine our call is still on for the day. And they're like. No, <laughs> no, we're gonna cancel that call. <laughs> anyway, so the then I realized that my uh, brother-in-law worked in the towers. You know, once you start focusing on reality and what's happening, and if you remember, I don't know where you were at the time, but if you were in the city, you remember cell service went down almost immediately. Right. Um, the the streets became, uh, you know, they were just barren. Nobody was driving or anything. So I ran all the way uptown to the Upper East Side, found my sister. And I said, where, you know, where is he? And she, you know, he had, he had actually quit that job about three days before. And he went in to pick up his final paycheck that morning. And so, you know, she was like, what do you think? You know, what do you say? Like, I I don't think it doesn't look good. And then, so we went about the business like everybody else does on that day, did on that day, we got a bunch of pictures. We went to all the hospitals and I, you know, I tell people it was the, best of humanity that day and the worst of humanity. uh, Because those people work at the hospitals, they spent as much time with each family member who was looking for a family member Uh as they as they had to, right. So anyway, that's something that changes your trajectory. How did that change my life? I said, I need to get back in this fight, I need to figure out a way to get back into this thing. And so that was, you know, 2001. And by 2003, I was in the FBI.
0: Wow, what a story! Um, yeah, it's it's what, it's
1: it's crazy. Everybody's what, got their 9/11 story.
0: Yeah, for sure. What what? So what ended up happening to your uh, brother-in-law? Did he? Uh... He
1: died. He died.
0: He died. yeah,
1: yeah. Sorry just to hear that. Yeah. Thanks. And you know, uh, my sister died. Uh, gosh, what is it now? Ten years almost. She died of breast cancer. Um, and but you know, the family we we always say no. She died on 9/11, 2001. Uh, cause she was never the same after that. And, uh, you know, and then wow. you know, succumbed to breast cancer. It was, it was, what a mess. But anyway, that's what, that's what, uh, that's what changed the trajectory of my career. You know?
0: Wow. Wow. Well, again, my condolences. My yeah. Condolences. Thank you. So, um, you. so that puts you back into the fight. Yeah. Uh, and so you joined the FBI now you spent, uh, 13 years with the mm-hmm. FBI. Um, so, Tell tell me about that. You were with the FBI. You were also you were also with the SWAT team, the New York uh, SWAT team. Um, you know my man. Uh, you Jim know. Galliano. Yep. <laughs> Jimmy Jim. Galliano.
1: Yeah, Jim. Look, let me let me throw something out about Jim. You know he um, he was he was the SWAT team leader when I got there, and the SWAT New York SWAT team was in bad shape. You know, okay. and it, I I wasn't you know I only knew it when Jim was in charge but everybody had told me, you know, and when you're somebody who turns things around like that, you make your fair share of enemies as well. And Jim, certainly he was good at that, but Mm -hmm. nobody ever said he didn't know what he was talking about and he didn't know his business. So Jim turned around that New York SWAT team. uh, And, you know, to the best of my knowledge, when I left it, it was tops in the country, tops in the world uh, as far as SWAT teams go. And then, but he took everything he learned from HRT, which is, an elite FBI unit in and of itself, right? I trained with those guys. Okay. They're the ones who put that program together. They're as good as anybody in the world. I can tell you that. So anyway, that's, 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 uh, I just want to throw a shout out to Jim um, on that. Cause he did a great job and everybody knows he did. Um, so anyway, uh, what was your question? Tell me about this experience. Right. So I can tell you a funny story though. Okay. So I'm at the FBI Academy. Right. And, I know I'm going to New York because that's where I processed out of. Okay. So you, you know, but, and typically they say you can't process, you can't. And I don't know if they changed, but you're not allowed to go to the hometown that you process out of. So in other words, if you, yeah. For whatever crazy reasons they had for that. But anyway, I knew I was going to New York. They, They assign you. I knew that's where I was going just because that's where I was from. That's where I lived. I knew they were going to send me back there. So I, that was cool with that. Okay. And so about, about halfway through the training, I go to my class leader and I say, look, I would like, is there any way that you I can be assured that I get assigned counterterrorism operations out of Central Asia? And he's like, that's pretty specific. And he goes, why? I said, well, I said, because I think, and I'm not a big historian, you know? And again, it's funny because I'm also friends with Doug Laux, who you, the CIA operative that you- Are uh, you? I am. And, um, and I'm more like him in that, like, yeah, whatever history, you know, I don't know. I don't know anybody. I didn't read any books. I just know this is cool. And that's what I want to do. But I did do a little reading. Right. And cause I was, I was focused on, you know, look, I'm, I'm going to get some, right. This right. is, this is a war I've been directly impacted. I was there. I saw it and I'm going to be on the side of right on this. And I, I know who the target is. Okay. And I assumed everybody was going to be going after Al-Qaeda, right? Everybody wanted that, okay? right. And that. That's cool. And my thought was who, who else is in this thing that nobody's thinking about? And it was my best guess. And I was right. That it was those former Soviet republics. Okay. That nobody was really looking at. And as it turns out the you know, think it was the, like the Islamic movement is Uzbekistan and there's a couple other ones, but think right. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, all those former Soviet republics. They were like the hitmen for Al-Qaeda, right? So, you know, Al-Qaeda wanted to do some really dirty stuff. They'd, you know, get on the phone and be like, okay, get me the get me the Uzbeks. So right. I just said, I-, "I want I want those guys and nobody, they weren't even on the radar screen. So that's who I was able to start working on initially. And then I also had India, uh, some Pakistan and Afghanistan, which was good. So my squad was really in in the mix of it, um, aside from the separate Al-Qaeda squad. So, you know, I got, man, when I, my first day on the job in New York City, I got, I lived in Hoboken, came across the river Mm -hmm. on the path and you come into downtown, the new 9-11 Memorial. Right. It was just, it was a moment I'll never forget. Right. It was, I got off my first day in the FBI in the New York office, and there I am at the 9 11 memorial. And I was like, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be at this moment of time in my life. And it was, it was look, aside from the issues that I had with leadership in the FBI, Mm -hmm. uh, it was everything I hoped it would be. You know, we got after some people, we did some really good things. I got to work very closely with the CIA which not everybody likes doing mm-hmm. um, I liked it you know I okay. thought they I thought they were cool they they have their agenda right but I understood that you know they were okay. gonna, they were going to steal all your information and use it for their good but if you knew that going in you were going to be okay right <laughs> gonna be okay so
0: right you got to work the angles right you got
1: to work the angles a little bit so and then you know just traveling the world. It was, it was everything that I hoped for. And the only reason I left New York city uh, was because I met my wife in the FBI and we both run leader one, nine, three together. You know, we wanted to start a family and um, we just didn't think living in that part of the, you know, of the city was going to be good for us. So we looked for the transfer down to a smaller office and that's what we did. I would have stayed, I would have stayed working work in terrorism in New York city, you know, for as long as I needed to. Wow.
0: Um It's clearly you have you have such a passion for this stuff, Um, and it's interesting to kind of hear one of the one of you know probably the main thing that that drove you out besides what you just suggested. I'm going to quote you from the book. You say that while some of the best leaders that I've ever worked with, worked for or observed were FBI special agents, my caveat to that is that they were the outliers. The expectation of great leadership was the norm in the SEAL teams, but in the FBI, the expectation was the opposite. Poor, emotionally charged leadership was the expectation and the norm in the FBI.
1: Why, why is that? I don't know. Um, I don't know. They... I think the, and again, look, I, and I'll make the caveat again. You just, that's the caveat. Um, I I don't, I am not out here trying to get visibility for myself by bashing the FBI, but you know, look, if I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be honest. You know, it's, I left for a specific reason Uh, and it was the leadership. I I think that the FBI talks a big game on leadership and they don't follow through. That's as simple as I can put it. They, they allow people to get into leadership positions who are not ready um, and the leadership position is looked on almost as a bad thing like oh why would you want to be a, in charge of a of a squad because you just get hassled and attacked by everybody and and i just i i, I couldn't understand it and you know i was um when i was a, a first or second year agent you know i got approached to say, look, we want you to be in charge of, of this squad. And I said, well, no. And, you know, no, why? Um, and I said, because I'm not a good enough special agent yet. Right. I said, I could, I could just as easily lead this squad. I know I can, mm-hmm. but I want to be, I want to be a perfect FBI, you know, squad leader. Right. I want to be able to have worked meaningful cases and be able to give people meaningful direction on investigative tactics. And right now I can't. And I said, well, I think I could very effectively lead a squad. That's what I want for me. And I, I thought that number for me, and it was probably a little high, but I'm like at the seven year mark or so is mm-hmm. when I'll start looking at that. Cause that's really, in my opinion, how long it takes to really get the ups and downs of casework Especially terrorism work, which was fairly new to the FBI. They had done terrorism stuff, but now it was a focus. Gotcha. And, um, you know, that wasn't the case with a lot of people. Uh, the best leaders, though, in the FBI were people just like me who had that same thought process. I want to be the best case agent first and then bring all of that knowledge, good, bad, and ugly, to lead an amazing squad of special agents. So those people that I worked for, and I'm going to say guys, because it just happened to be, they were all guys, not there wasn't fantastic women leaders and bad women leaders there were, but it just, in my case, they were guys. Wow. Um, you know, the best ones were, were those guys who had done what I said, been great case agents first. You get somebody like that in the FBI, you can make magic. Wow. You just, there's nothing you can't do when you have a leader in charge who says, don't worry about it. I've got you. Just make sure, you know, follow the elements of the law, follow mm-hmm. the the guy, you know, follow the things we're supposed to follow. Right. But we'll work in the gray area. As long as we can justify everything we do in an open forum, work in your gray area. That's fine. And that's where the magic happens. I'm not this is not a secret to anybody who's done anything worthwhile. You've got to find the gray area. I had a partner who was obsessed with every law, regulation, and whatever. And it was all good, because it was good to work with her because she knew this stuff, but she was paralyzed by it all, right? She would say, yeah, but this one says this, I'm not so sure we can technically do it. And I had to like, well, no, that's, that's not accurate. That, that you're reading the letter of the, that, 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 um, that guideline Right. not even the law you're not reading the spirit of it right we can justify what we're doing based on what this says we have no problem right and if you do that enough in the fbi then all of a sudden you become a renegade a loose cannon gotcha and that's where i started to get labeled a little bit and i would you know i would say that's that's not accurate everything i do is documented properly as a matter of fact i took pride in my documentation and my work here's Here's, here's what you're citing from a regulation standpoint, but here's what you're not saying. You're looking at it only from one view. Anyway, the best leaders were able to see the nuance right. and not hide from it and say, "We no, I will justify this to anybody in the world because here's how we're reading it, here's how we can explain it and we're not hiding, we're documenting it, now let's go. Boom, that's when it starts to happen. The majority of the leaders out there didn't know about nuance. They didn't want to hear about nuance. They had this thing in their head that we were breaking laws, which we weren't. I mean, laws and regulations are two different things. Right. You don't, right? Before you do anything, if you're you're looking to the gray area of the law, you're going to the U.S. attorney, (laughs) okay? They have the final word on that. Like, I'm thinking about doing this. Does that break this law? Yeah, you can't do that. Okay, cool. Thanks. Uh, I'll make another plan. Whereas a regulation, like no, no, that's not the spirit of what they're talking about. Right. So that was that was it. I don't know why it's fostered that way. They speak a big game on leadership, but it's it's not there.
0: Yeah, because if you don't have that leader that you know understands the spirit of it all, that, you know that that has your back and it is going to fight for that, you know, then excellence will never thrive. Right, mm-hmm. uh, everyone becomes neurotic. Uh, yes. Otherwise, and nothing gets done, and uh, you know it's it's just real interesting because right on the outside, you know, looking look, you know looking at the the facade uh, that's created, you just think these are organizations of supreme excellence, and that you know whether it's FBI, Navy Seals, DEA, you have an expectation as a citizen. That wow, this is the upper echelon. So it's super interesting when you find out actually that maybe not in the seals, um, although I know it's it, it it it's super rare. Let's just put it that way. In special ops, it's super rare, but um, you know, in the FBI, uh, DEA, ATF. You know, you have humans that have their foibles and, you know, uh, in, unless you have a, a supremely um, bulletproof process for leadership that everyone is bought into, it just turns into politics and a bureaucracy. So well,
1: it does. And, and that's, you know, the thing about the FBI, which I loved about it, which is different than the military you know, in the military, you get assigned your operation, right? Okay. Somebody from higher authority says, go take down that target. Now you use all your imagination and intuition to really figure out how to do it. And there's, and that's all cool. The FBI, which I loved about it, is you made what you did, right? You made your cases. You know, you I went out and found my own cases. I went out and nobody assigned me anything. I wow. went in, I was assigned to Central Asian terrorism. Okay. Okay. Good luck, Errol. There's like one case. You <laughs> know? Cases. So, so that you know, that that's the part that I love. But to do that, you've got to be hyper aggressive, right? And that's, so even when I I worked Indian terrorism, you know, how do you make it, what is Indian terrorism, right? The Sikhs for God's sakes, you know, and there's this small band of extremists. Well, we made cases on them. Okay, nobody had ever heard of them. That's right. You had to get super aggressive with getting in the mix, right? Follow the law, follow the guidelines, all that, you know, human rights, all yes. But you have to operate in the gray. You have to do some things, you know, that you're like, boy, if this doesn't work, I'm going to look really stupid. Well, well clearly,
0: this is why you're, you're, you're friends with uh, D- Douglas Laux. <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, that's where gonna... me and him, yeah, me and him hit it off. It's funny, I, I, I met Doug, he was, <laughs> I met Doug in an audition for a TV show. Um, okay. Yeah. So we were, um, and it was that show Spy Time. I think it did one season. He got picked up for it and, and I didn't. But we were all sitting around in this room, right? And they recruited a bunch of people like us. And I was talking to one of the other people who was an FBI agent and mm-hmm. we had long since retired. And I was just, you know, both had long since left the FBI. And I was just making small talk. And, and I said, so what, what squad were you on? What what else do you ask? Right. Right. You know, they said, Oh, I worked, um, I worked intelligence. And I said, Oh, cool. Which which one? Which squad? And she said, Well, I can't, you know, I can't say the squad. I'm like, Yeah, well, I probably wouldn't know the squad, but what part of the world? I, I like I, I wasn't getting it. Right. And she's not answering my question. And I then it dawned on me like, oh you're you big time in me here that your stuff was so important you can't tell me you worked ah. Iranian intelligence as if we didn't know that existed or whatever it was right so up on it quick I'm like oh okay I got it and now I'm figuring out how do I get out of this and I see Doug in the corner laughing because he's seeing this from a mile away right he's like you we were just trying to have a conversation you didn't realize she was like being secret squirrel on you right and then that's how we hit I, yeah because I was like what did I miss something over there? So anyway, so he and I hit it off. We, we spent a lot of time together on that. Cool. I haven't seen him in a while, but yes, we had the same, we shared the same frustrations with our respective organizations regarding leadership and things like that. Well, so you
0: take all of, all of that tremendous experience, um, you know, seeing seeing how it's done at a very high level and being done exceptionally well, As well as seeing how it's done, exceptionally poorly, Uh, and you come out of all this and you form uh, leader leader one nine three your consulting business. So let's now let's dive into the concept of leadership. First and foremost, what does leader one nine three mean?
1: Yeah, one nine three is just my SEAL uh, Hell Week class, and so I. So it's
0: buds one nine three.
1: Yep, that, I just pay. I pay homage to that. That's all it is. Um, it was a great, great time. So I had a very unique uh, Hell Week class. We started, and don't quote me on the numbers specifically, but I'm in the ballpark. We started okay. our class with about 200 people, and after Hell Week, which is at the end of week four or five, I, I can't remember which one it is, but it's early in the six-month training, we were down to 10. Um, so it was one of those classes that you get that, that really chips into that 70% attrition rate. So it's just, it was, it was a fantastic time in my life. And I just always want to remember it and keep it alive. Cause that's where, that's where most of my leadership philosophy comes from, from the SEAL team. So
0: very cool. Okay. So um, we've touched on some of the bad uh, when it comes to leadership. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the good stuff. Mm-hmm. What makes... For a good leader, uh, what does great leadership look like?
1: Yeah, so when I wrote the book, you know, as as we talk a little bit, and you're you're getting a little bit of my personality, right? I'm a little against the grain. I, I don't mm-hmm. mind the gray area. I certainly don't mind failure. Uh, I don't, just I'm not afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as testimony to how many times I've actually failed at things, right? <laughs> so that's clear that it doesn't that it doesn't bother me. Um, but when you, when you have that, you operate a lot on instinct. Okay. Okay. And instinct is a good thing. Only when you know what that instinct is. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, I operated wholly on instinct and emotion. And sometimes it worked out for me and sometimes it didn't. And it, it shouldn't as I reflected back, it should never have not worked out for me. Okay. And the times that it didn't work out for me was because I wasn't aware of the emotions that were driving me. And I wasn't aware that the instincts that I had at the time were bad instincts, not good instincts. Okay. They were just instincts. Um, And then likewise with my successes, right. When you go for it and you hit it, people are like, Whoa, that guy's awesome. That guy or girl is awesome. It wasn't luck. But to a degree, it was because it was just so happened in those situations, my instincts and my emotions served me well. So the point I'm making is I had to go back when I said, all right, I'm going to I'm going to try to teach people leadership. I have to be able to explain very clearly what do I think is a great leader and I have to be able to articulate it and I have to have real firsthand experience on it. Mm -hmm. So it took me a little while to put it all together, as you can imagine, right? In an organized fashion. And what I realized there was a set, there was a process, there was things that were always in place. And the first thing was emotions, emotional awareness and recognition that drove everything, good, bad and ugly for me in my life, right? And, and I was able to go back and, and look at all of it, okay? When I had control of my emotions, when I didn't let it drive me, success, success, success when I didn't have control of my emotions, when I let the emotion drive me, failure, 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 100% of the time without question. So you ask me, what's the what's the top thing that you have to learn, have to know as a leader? Emotional awareness and recognition. That's where the FBI gets it wrong. Okay. okay? Because most of those leaders are emotionally charged. Okay, they feel like they have to show everybody um, through overly emotional actions and verbiage and whatever else, how much they care. Look how much I care because how emotional I'm getting over this. Okay. That's what I found to be the consistent piece in the majority of the leaders opposite in the SEAL team, right? Just think the, the, not cliche, but the leader who was on the radio under fire and you'd think he's having dinner with his girlfriend, right? You couldn't just tone of voice. Yeah. we got, we need fire coming in at these coordinates. We have three down right now. Uh, We're going to, you know, whatever it is, that's the leader, right? That's an emotional awareness and recognition of that. That leader's scared to death. I can promise you that recognizing the fear and then saying, how do I want to act on it? So emotional awareness, and recognition, first, foremost, I lead everything with that. Then I lead with something called cultural awareness and recognition. It ties into it. It's a process. Emotions drive our actions, It is our actions that make up our culture, the things we do, not the labels we put on it. So if you're not aware of your emotions and then the things you do, you can't go on to the next step of making positive change because you're just not even aware of what needs change. So, you know, I'll kind of stop there for a little bit, but that, if I had to end this whole thing, it would be those two things, absolute awareness on emotions and what they drive you to do. And you have to be aware of that without judgment. Okay, we're not here to judge our emotions. We're not here to say we can't have those emotions we're saying we have to be aware of them and then what we're acting on
0: does it make sense it makes a lot of sense um and you know a lot so i think it's like it's like everything else when when an expert breaks something down for you and they do it really well you say to yourself you, you you know it instinctively that it's true and that it's right uh, and we're only ever learning stuff that is almost common sense yeah but it's so mud, it's muddled and it's lost and it's camouflage in hyperbole and 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 just the you know the um, the wild the wild and unpredictable nature of the environment we're in, and maybe even the leaders that, you know, that we're working with completely being unpredictable as well.
1: Mm.
0: So, you know, but when you, when you learn something that is powerful, it's always very simple. And you say to yourself, that makes sense. It's common sense, right? So what you're really talking about, um, I think everyone gets but they just don't realize how powerful that is. But by the same token, so let's test that, right? Because why, uh, so if you're talking about a process for leadership, because what you mm-hmm. just talked about there is some, is some basic powerful truths. And if you just stop there and you understood that, man, you, you'd be 180 degrees greater, you know, better as a leader, you'd be, fat, yep. you'd be absolutely brilliant if you just took that on board. And a lot of people, including maybe myself, I don't even know. Um, I'd have to be brutally honest with myself, which is what you test people to do. You do it in the book. You use an example of someone that you keep pushing them to be honest about their emotions. Um, But why have a process for leadership? Why have a process for it? Why not just lead? If If your instincts are you know, I recognize my emotions. I know my emotions are driving my actions. Yep. I, right. So
1: so why have a process? Yep. Why not simply lead? Yep. So the process, because without process, if we don't have process, we can't determine where things went right and where things went wrong. That's it. Simple as that. So when I talk to somebody in a leadership position or even an individual contributor, okay. they'll tell me something, you know, whatever's going wrong. And I'll say, well, work me through your thought process on this. And almost 10 out of 10 times, like, well, you know, Errol, I've just done it so many times, it's instinct, right? Cool, right? And I know exactly what he's saying. Like, you don't have a process. You're just acting. You're just doing things. And now that something's gone wrong, you can't put your finger on where it went wrong. And you'll just point your finger now instead. Okay, now where I can say, so those are the, there's five elements to the process, right? I've just given you the first two, awareness. Right. Once we have that awareness, we go to something we've already talked about. Behavioral guidelines, right? If you didn't change the way you made market or sold your widget, but you behaved in these ways, would you get better? It has nothing to do with how you turn the screwdriver. It has nothing to do with the nine-step or sales process. It is behaviors. Because when we behave in certain ways, we become better at our widget. Okay, we become, if I behave with... Moral courage, if I have more courage in my decision-making process, mm-hmm. in all aspects of my life, will that make you a better copy or salesman? Will that make you a better author? Will that make you a better podcaster? Yes, it will. Okay, so it's a, it's a behavior. You don't know which behaviors are right for you until you go through emotional awareness and recognition, cultural awareness and recognition. That's why it's a process, not gotcha. just standalone things, because you can't go to behaviors Right. That's where that's the art of it. You can't go to behaviors into, you know, which behaviors you need. Right. I could say to you, Larry, you know, Larry, you need to operate with a little more courage in your decision making process, for example.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you might be thinking to yourself that that is the last thing I need. I've written four books. I have this, you know, I, I, courage is not my problem. We can all agree courage is good, but I've just wasted your time with my leadership advice because that's not right. applicable to you because we haven't gone through the process, okay? Once we get to the process, once we get to behavioral guidelines, we might say, you know what, Larry, you need to prioritize and you need to execute to completion. Okay, because what you're doing is, you're doing 15 things at the same time and nothing's getting done. If you prioritize things in your life and executed them to completion, if you had a conversation with your wife and ignored the noise around you and executed that conversation with your wife to completion, would you be a better husband? The answer is, of course you would. If you did it with your children, would you be a better father? Yes, if you did it with your employees, would you be a better boss? It's a behavior that's applicable everywhere. now we know it's applicable to you. We can do this with teams, individuals, whatever. Process, things start going wrong. I just say, let me go through your process. Oh, well, it's a behavior right here. First of all, you never identified this behavior in you that screwed it up, or you never identified the behavior in your team that you wanted, or you identified it and didn't make it clear to them on a consistent basis that that's what you would hold them accountable to. So there's your problem. Your problem is in behavioral guidelines process.
0: You see, I think we're a lot of, we're a lot of leadership uh, advice, uh, books on leadership, um, where, where a lot of it goes wrong is that it doesn't take you on a journey of self-discovery. And so you just get the advice, have, you know, have, you know, great leaders have moral courage. Here's what you need to do. But yet that might not be what you need.
1: Yeah. I've got a lot of moral courage. Right. That's not going to make me a great leader necessarily. Okay. Because I may screw everything else up. Right. Right. Yeah no this is
0: this is this is fantastic okay and, we're, and by the way I'm gonna we're gonna uh, break down the the five elements you've already now hit three of them First first three um, yep. and we're gonna super define it for the listeners but before I do that um, you also talk a lot about speaking a common language of uh, of leadership a, a a common leadership language so yep. what is a leadership language and, mm-hmm. and what does ha- actually having one
1: achieve? <clears throat> so if we get to, as a leader, all of the, we start going through the process by the time you're leading your team, right? You've worked with me. You are now inundated with your emotions. You're like, I can't even believe this guy I'm working with is making me do all this emotional stuff. Right. But right. Once we get to put some meat on the bone with the behaviors and then the planning process, which is next, Okay. Once we define, you can't hold someone accountable unless they know what they're supposed to be accountable to. Once you start defining behavioral guidelines for your team, you are now speaking a common language. We, my first sales team that I talked, we talked about, we addressed in the book in, when I worked for OSE, it was an awful sales team. They were terrible. And that was going to be the first sales team that I had. And they were in New York City, man. I, I started in D.C., and then the boss who I worked for, he moved to New York. And then he said, why don't you come? I want you to take this team. And I did. They were terrible. And I just said, all right, in my mind, this team needs some basic behavioral guidelines because I just saw it for a couple of days. I heard about it. I hit them with things you hit your children with. Be on time. Right. No gossip or bad mouth. Um, no lying or deceit. And when you work, work. Work to the best of your ability, right? And that and each behavior I had had some context to it. Yes. Right. So why does beyond time important? Well, for me, it was the obviously the obvious efficiency of things. Okay. And then I had to define what does beyond time mean? If the meeting starts at nine and you dive through the door at nine, does, are you on time? Or are we sitting down at our seats at nine, right? Doesn't matter to me. So for me, it was sitting down in our seats, ready to start at nine o'clock. You want to walk in at three seconds to nine and you can be ready, cool. If you need to be there 10 minutes early to get yourself ready, cool. But anyway, I there has to be context, right? To what you're saying. And if we did these things, would they make us better salespeople, right? If we were on time, if we didn't gossip or bad mouth inside the team, would that make us better? Of course, lie and be deceitful, right? I had to, ooh, that was a big one. You calling us liars. (laughs) I said, well, no, but I've seen some of your quarterly projections and I know that's bullshit. So that's why I put lie and deceit in there. If we were honest about our work, where we were, what we were doing, would we get better? Of course we would, right? So that became our language all of a sudden I defined what they would be held accountable to from a behavioral standpoint. All right. So when I say to somebody, you know, Hey, just a reminder, as we go through these quarterly projections, honesty, and and, you know, no deceit, no lying. they're not going to get offended. They're going to be like, what the hell with you? You, you're a liar. What do you call me a liar? No, they're going to know that's part of our language. That's one of the things that Errol's holding us accountable to. He will not tolerate it. If I am not being deathly honest, with the things that are happening in my account, it's a language now. I've defined the language through behaviors. Okay, the the be- so that's the common leadership language. What are the behaviors we're going to hold these? What are the things we're going to hold ourselves accountable to? They should only be a handful because okay. a couple good behaviors have great um, have great uh, ripple effects on other parts of your life. Okay, so that's it. That's the language. The next part of the planning process is a. Uh, the next part of the leadership process is the planning process, right? We've gone through the self-discovery. We've gone through behavioral changes, but look, in the end, leaders are defined by mission accomplishment.
0: Right. Okay. Well, hold on. Let me, let yeah. me stop you there for a moment. Yeah. Okay. So let, so the leadership, your leadership process is actually, I want, let's break it down now. Yep. we're moving through it, right? Your leadership process consists of five elements, right? So the first one is practice emotional awareness and recognition. The second one is practice cultural awareness and recognition. So I want to come back to that in a second. Mm -hmm. The third is create guidelines for behavior, which we were just talking about. The fourth is what you were just about to dive into, which is implement the planning process. And then number five is meet the resistance. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Okay. So we, again, so practice emotional awareness and recognition, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we kind of glossed, you know, glossed over some of these because we weren't completely you know, focused on what does that actually mean? Yep. So, it just, so let's get a succinct uh, definition. What do you, when, when going through your leadership process, number one, practice emotional awareness and recognition. I think everyone pretty much gets it now, but just to define it,
1: what does that mean? What should we be doing? Yes, it is, it is simply the state of understanding your emotions as they come to you and acknowledging them. That's it. Simple as that. Fear, insecurity, unworthiness, anxiety, right? Anything, whatever it is, we have got to be able to name how we're feeling at any moment of time in the day.
0: Why is that as a leader, right? Again, counterintuitively, I'm thinking, I'm the leader. These guys cannot, cannot view me as being scared of what we're about to go and do. So I'm scared shitless. Uh, I'm not even, I'm not even going to recognize it myself. I'm going to stuff it way down because I can't let anyone think that I feel that way. And this is whether I'm in, you know, again, in my mind, whether I'm in the military or whether I'm in the boardroom and I'm about to give a big speech to 50 people, right. You know, I, I'm stuffing all of those emotions away. Why is it actually a bad thing to do that? Why should I recognize, holy shit, I'm scared.
1: Mm -hmm. Why is that a good thing? Yep. So this is why it's process, right? Because when you say, all right, I'm scared. You've now just acknowledged it. There's a science part to this, which we can, you know, but once you acknowledge, science tells us, once we acknowledge our emotions, Uh we can then objectively deal with it. As opposed to when we push it down, right? We are not objectively dealing with it. We are actually letting that emotion run wild. Maybe it works out for you, but maybe it doesn't. The Mm. thing about it is our body is a closed system. It produces things that we need. It is the most perfect thing the world knows. Mm. And an emotion that you create, there's a need for it. And if you try to tuck it away, it's not going to be ignored. It will manifest itself in low back pain, in migraine, in erratic behavior. Boom. Now, there we are. Cultural gotcha. awareness. So, we say, I am afraid. And I notice, because I have cultural awareness and recognition, because culture is made up of the things we do, I notice that my fear is driving me to inaction right now. Now we're recognizing what we're doing. Whoa. All of a sudden, and it could be on a micro level, a macro level. It can be in the moment. It could be throughout your life. That's the art of this thing, right? I have to, in our example, recognize my culture at that moment. I'm afraid and, oh, my God, I'm, I'm not acting because I'm afraid. Good. Now, behavioral guidelines. This may be something that's been a problem for you all the time. And you know that as a behavior, you want to act with more, you um, aggressiveness right? right right default mode aggression right, right. Then, you know Jocko's made a living on that term but it's something all seals and i i mean that in the in the most complimentary way to him right. uh, that's something all seals right i didn't get that from him that's what we all do right when in doubt what do we do we go to aggressive some people need that as a behavior so in our example this will have been something you identified in yourself When I get afraid, I'm in action. And one of my personal guidelines for behavior is to be more aggressive in these instances. So now I can still be afraid, but I have been working on that behavioral guideline for myself. And I will now consciously say, it's okay that I'm afraid. I don't have to tell everybody I'm afraid. I don't have to act afraid. I have to, though, in spite of my fear, do this thing. Behavioral guideline. That's That's the process. Okay. All right.
0: So, So then when we go to number two, which is practice cultural awareness, make sure I got this right. So what we're saying there is, okay, I've recognized my emotions. I'm aware of them. But now I'm also looking to see what is that emotion driving me to do?
1: That's right.
0: Is that what cultural awareness is?
1: Yeah. So it's yes and all of the above. So again... This is why there's an art to my process, okay, for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, okay. we can, we're all gonna have different emotions. Your yes. emotions are gonna be different than my emotions. The things you do, your culture, is going to be different than my culture. But we can all agree we need to acknowledge the big picture of emotions and culture. We just need to know what they mean for us. So when I work with people, I have them literally for a week Send me, we've got our little leadership app that we put out there and Mm -hmm. they send me what they do. And they're like, Errol, what do you mean? What do I do? Like, I do a lot of stuff. Tell me what you do. I I keep it purposely nebulous because they've got to figure it out. They've got to be looking around. Now, one or two things always happens. There is a conclusion to what they do. They either get it or through what they're telling me, go through a series of things that they do I go well it sounds like you do this thing so what does that mean somebody might say you know Errol you know what I do I procrastinate and I'll say fine tell me what you do tell me the things you do that define procrastination because if you can't tell me what you do that you put that label procrastination on it then you weren't paying attention you're just bullshitting me and you know that's not going to work okay or so and then typically they can right they'll say well And they'll give me a series of things that they noticed about themselves, about their culture, that they did. Gotcha. That's it. Or they don't really get it. So they said, well, here's what I did. First, I started on the email. And then I went to this meeting. And then I worked on this project. And I got a little bored with it. Then I went and worked on this project. I got a little bored with that. And then I went over. I said, oh, okay. So I said, you don't, whatever we want to put the label on it, but you don't finish anything. Right? You don't prioritize. You don't execute. You just have Stuff going all over the place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's what I do. Great. Now, typically the behavior we want to, that we have to identify comes from what we've identified in the culture and it's usually the opposite. So it's not that difficult. It's right. Makes sense. Right. So cultural awareness, that's
0: it. So, okay. So, um, right. So I'm afraid of this big challenge we've got coming up. And so I proc- so I procrastinate. And so I've created a culture of procrastination within the organization, right? So when we talk about what kind of culture do you have, you have a culture of these following actions, and that's being driven by the emotions that the leader is feeling, uh, and then of course how the um, how those that work on the team uh, what they're picking up emotionally as well. Then you got their emotions that you have to that's deal right. with. So yep. you you you're not only you're not only doing this exercise for yourself. You 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 have to be emotionally aware of your team and culture and you know and 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 what they're picking up their signals right. and so then you create the guidelines for behavior which is the opposite of the action you want to fix. There's right? probably it'll
1: probably generally be just the opposite. That's it. But, that's what makes it you know once again that's why it's a beautiful process that builds on itself.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Got so it. Let me,
1: and, and let me just make a, a, a you brought up a great point um, that. The reason that we have to start with ourselves on this and not our team, I will not let anybody I I coach talk about their team first. We'll get to that, okay? Trust me. Okay. We'll get to that. And what happens invariably, and I'm sure there's some scientific reason behind it I haven't found yet, but you know, is when we start to recognize those emotions in ourselves, we invariably begin to recognize emotions in others, okay? Because we're in tune to it. Gotcha. It will, it will automatically emanate out. It's just what happens, right? If I am so focused at all times, which I am on my emotions, because I know that is my, right? I am ai can be an emotionally charged individual. And if I'm not aware at every second, even to this, I get so excited talking about this, I have to check it, right? Oh, you're getting too excited. You're getting off point, stay on point, right? Make this, I'm constantly thinking about it. And that allows me to see that in others, right? So if somebody, if I'm in charge of something and somebody's giving me a bad report, whatever, and I am not emotionally aware, okay? I'm not seeing probably the most important thing. I'm not seeing body language. I'm not seeing demeanor. Right. I'm not seeing tone of voice, which I might say, something's different with Lawrence today. I don't care that he screwed this thing up so bad. There's a reason why he screwed up. I just might simply ask, Lawrence, are you okay? Yeah, I'm really sorry I messed that up. No, 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 You just, you seem different. Are you okay? Well, no, you know, my mom just came down with cancer. I didn't stop, (laughs) okay? Now we have found the problem because we have emotional awareness recognition. Lawrence, you might be such a hard charger. You might be so committed. You might be in such a way that you don't wanna burden everybody with your problems. So you're not gonna tell me the boss that your mom just came down with this deathly illness. But if I am aware of that, I can see it. And I don't need you to tell me. <laughs> okay, I don't need it. I can see it all right. I can just simply ask you a question. And you're going to want to tell me the answer, if that's yeah. the case, right? So yeah, that that, that will naturally emanate.
0: So this is, this is really powerful, because while you're doing this, you know, everyone talks about emotional EQ, mm-hmm. right? Everyone talks about how important it is to be emotionally aware in, in business. I mean, and in sales, my God, right. Um, Certainly for a leader, emotional EQ is Mm -hmm. like, you know, massive. And by doing this, you're actually organically developing a powerful antenna uh, for, you know, for, for picking up the emotional uh, uh, signals uh, and sensibilities of others, and becoming extremely attuned uh, to their emotional well-being.
1: Yep, and 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 you know, you're right in sales ego. Th- th- there's more ego in sales than I think in any other. Maybe politics, you know, Trump's right. sales, but um, you know, there's just a, a massive amount of ego. Right. And I talk, you know, the 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 friend who I talk about in the book who uh, recommended me to. Um, copier sales. And he called it the Vietnam of sales. And I've just stolen that term ever since. But anyway, he's, he is the, hands down the best salesman I've ever seen. And he runs a big you know, team and all that hugely successful. And every now and then he sticks me for free advice because he'll refuse to pay for anything for me. Right. And I'm going to tell him I said this. I'm going to say, watch at hour <laughs> one and a half. I'm just kidding. But anyway, he you will know, we, we'll talk. He'll be like, okay, smart guy, tell me about this situation. And we'll just go right to emotion. And I'll say, well, it sounds like you think that guy's a buffoon. Well, he is a buffoon. And I, I, you know, I couldn't control it. I had to let him know he's kind of a buffoon. I'm like, well, where else are we talking about? You were not emotionally aware. Your culture is to call people out when you think they're not as smart as you. And then that's what you did. I said, do I need to go any further? And, And again, he is the most accomplished salesperson. He's like, You're right. (laughs) You're right. So even somebody with a massive ego, and he doesn't have a massive ego, but he wasn't even aware of it. And he's a seasoned salesperson.
0: You know, this is amazing because, again, this flies in the face of uh, what is the conventional wisdom of uh, great leadership advice. For instance, um, let's, let's, Okay, what is what is a great culture look like? Right? What's a great culture look like? So I'm going to teach you how to how, you know how to build a an incredible culture, a great culture for your organization. You should be doing this, 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 and this. But actually, that's that's not the case because you know the art part of this is that everyone's culture might need to be different based on their environment and the people within the organization. So for instance, I was going to ask you what does a good culture look like. And you actually have um, two things that you can attribute uh, great culture to that, it, it, that um, I think captures the spirit of what great culture is. But if I was to say, you know, if I was to say um, I, want, I, want my, I want my organization to have a culture like the SEAL teams. And I know from reading your book, SEAL team culture, three things. Aggressiveness or action is the default mode. Mm-hmm. You always yes first, right? You move to yes first and uh, work unemotionally and methodically. Sure. Now those th- those that those are great. Ele- that those are elements of a great culture. Uh, but that might not be what you know my culture needs at my organization. Yeah,
1: that may not be what you need. So, but, that's but it. there are
0: two things that go to the spirit of what a great culture is. So rather than giving advice on what your culture should have, tell us what those what the what what the spirit of uh, a great culture looks like.
1: Awareness around behaviors and emotions, mm-hmm. and then defining the behaviors you will hold people accountable to based on what you've observed. And and the planning process, and you have to plan. Let's like, get so into I, that. I always yeah. just throw that out there, and you have to plan because that's something you can hold people accountable to. So it's another thing. So defining what you will be holding people accountable to, if I had to put it in one sentence, makes a great culture. You can't do that easily unless you go through, in my opinion, my process. Um, That's it, and it will be specific. That is your art, because everybody's gonna need something different. And then collectively, you as the leader, you need to set the culture. You can't just let it happen, Mm. okay? So there's no such thing as an organic, our
0: culture is, is being built organically.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, again, define organically for me, because if it's organic based on what you need, based on your awareness, that's very organic. You're not doing, you're not doing cutting, cookie cutter. So I don't want to bang on the people who say they're growing it organically, but that's how I would challenge them. I would just say, how, what does that mean? Gotcha. And if you start saying, we're just, we're just letting it happen. I'm like, okay, great. Yeah, see see on the unemployment line, okay? Because that's, <laughs> that's not going to work,
0: you know? All right. So a big part of your process is planning. Now, you know, a lot of people hate planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to be a great leader though, you got to plan. You, you got, I mean, you got to plan. Um, your planning process is a modified version of the system that you learned and used as a Navy SEAL platoon commander. Sure. Uh, the elements of which form the acronym SMAC S M A C C C, which stands for Situation, Mission, Actions, Command, Contingencies, and Communication. Sure. And, and I'm going to quote you here, Errol. These are the elements of a planning process that are used to keep people alive and achieve mission accomplishment on the battlefield. This process was not formulated by academics in a sterile lab. It is literally born of blood. (laughs) Okay, I gotta take this serious. I mean, okay, so take us through smack.
1: Yeah, this is, so my process is extensive but it's really in the end, two things. Behavioral guidelines and, and planning right okay but you can't get to those two places effectively unless you do the first two elements emotions and culture but this is this is the meat right so you work with me you are going to be beat down on your emotions and what you're doing and identifying behaviors and then finally we get to action right and that's 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 the planning process if you cover let me let me stop I don't even know why. Well, here I do know why I put it in because when I when I put this whole thing together, I didn't look anywhere else, right? I didn't even know there's a thing called emotional quotient or emotional intelligence when I put right. this thing together, right? That's I had no idea that existed. That's amazing. I didn't realize, I didn't realize that there's all these books on it. I didn't realize anything. Um, and same thing with the planning process. I had no idea that there was so little planning going on in the in the public in the private sector. There is, so there's very little planning going on. I had no idea the dearth, and and, but I just, like I said, I put my process together, this is it, these are the things. I know if you do these things, you will have leadership success. And then the first time you start throwing this out there, right, you're you're afraid, I don't have to tell you, there's a first time you put your theory together, somebody pays you money and says, okay. You're like, oh God, I hope this works. (laughs) Right. And, and it does, of course. But I didn't realize how powerful the planning process would be. Um, and then and, and the, the more I now, the more I work with it, with with groups, the, the more powerful it becomes. But in a nutshell. If you cover the elements of this process, OK, before you start acting, one or two things are going to happen, you are going to find mission success okay, or the elements are gonna tell you why you shouldn't go forward. They're just, it's gonna be right there. Hey, we wanna do this crazy thing. Fine, put it, make the plan. Let me see it, let's see it. It, The the plan will tell you, right? The plan will mostly tell you around, right out of the gate, situation, set of circumstances dictating a need for action, okay? It could either be a problem or an opportunity. But if I tell you something, Lawrence, and you say, so what? And I say, well, what do you mean, so what? Like it doesn't have anything to do with us, what you just told me. It has something to do with somebody, mm-hmm. but that's not for us. We can ignore that. You have just saved your organization or team a massive amount of time by not undertaking a project that you don't need to undertake simply because you identified the situation. And said, Do we need to act on this? Boom! so out of the gate. That's the one that nobody does. Right? Why are you doing this? Oh, what's our why? I'm like, whatever. What's our why? I get it. Just tell me what's your situation? What are the set of circumstances that are driving you to do this? Okay. People can't answer it. So if you have that, though, if you do have that answer. Okay. What is your mission? Okay. What are you trying to accomplish based on this? And you can't tell me five things all rolled up into one. You can tell me five separate things, that's okay. Well, we've got several missions on this and they'll usually, one has to go first so you have to prioritize, right? Um, But what what happens is a lot of times when there's disputes or there is stagnation in a project, I'll just simply ask the question, what's the mission? What are you trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. I'll get three different answers. I'll say, well, we found our problem, process right, process. People are so afraid of process, but because we have process, we can find where the problem is. And the problem is you're all trying to accomplish different things. So of course it's not working. So let's start by identifying truly what we're trying to accomplish and then prioritize this. Boom, next. If we have a mission, we need to have actions that we know will accomplish that mission. And we have to make them clear. Simple as that, before we start acting, because one of the actions might be, Well, we need to land a man on the moon in order to accomplish this. We can't do that. I guess we can't do this plan then, right? That's obviously a ridiculous example, but until you start identifying those actions, okay, there you are, it has to be done. It doesn't always happen, okay? If you have actions, then you have to account for things that can go wrong. Now, this is where we get the naysayer. And the naysayer, what do they like to call themselves? pessimistic optimist, right? But it's somebody who just always wants to throw water on the, you know, water on right. things before they get started. And I say, look, stop. You're going to have your turn, Mr. Or Mrs. Pessimistic optimist or whatever you like to call yourself. Um, but your turn is not first. First, we're going to go positive. We're going to say, if we do these actions, will we accomplish this mission? Good. That's good. So we know it can be done. Okay. Now let's account for some things that can go wrong. Come on in. You're in. Now, what is a contingency? That's a very difficult part of the planning process because it takes experience. right? How many contingencies do we account for? But the bottom line is this. If I have an action that I say we need to accomplish, and Lawrence, you tell me 15 things that can really go wrong with that action. Mm -hmm. And I say, we can't account for 15 things. If two or three of those things happen, we are out of luck. Okay, Not to mention the other 12 Now we're saying to ourselves, we're not ready to go forward because we can't account or we're not ready to bear the risk of these things that we've identified that can realistically go wrong. We're not ready. You've just now saved yourself more time now. And what's more, well, why can't we do those things? Well, we don't have, we have a, we have a a knowledge gap. We have a talent gap. We don't have enough people who are fluent in this language of Adobe, I don't know, whatever it is, right? So we need to get some training Mm -hmm. and then we can fill that gap. Then we can go forward. So that's the beauty of contingencies, right? That allows us that. Um, Command. Command is not, I command you to do this. Command is where we put true accountability on the things that we have identified we're going to do. If you have a mission, Mm -hmm. there needs to be a name next to that mission. Who's in charge? Not four people in charge, not two people in charge, one person. That's it. Okay, because if you have leadership by committee, you have no leadership at all, that's where it will stall, I promise you, every single time, okay? Because the two people will not agree and then it just sits there. If you have actions that you're identifying, there needs to be a name next to each action. Simple as that, who's doing that? They are now accountable to that thing. We have just made it clear what they're accountable to and I can ask them the questions on that, all right? That's it. That's command. Everything that happens needs to have a name next to it. Um, and then communication. Communication is not the soft skills of communication, which are enormously important. It's just not what we're talking about. Right. Okay. Communication is when will we talk, who will, we, who will be talking to each other, what will we be talking about, for how long will we be talking, and uh, on what media will we talk about? Will it be a video call? Will it be in person? Whatever it is. If you have a good, solid communications plan, okay, we will talk every day at five o'clock. These three people will talk every day at five o'clock for five minutes for an update. You can afford to miss one of the other elements of the planning process because it'll come out because you're communicating properly. Okay, so, Lawrence, um, somebody give me an update on this action, okay, that we identified that needs to happen in their silence. Hey, somebody give me an update on this action. Silence. Who's in, who's in charge of that? Oh, we forgot to assign command to that. Shoot. All right. Good. Good thing. We have a good communications plan Mm -hmm. because now we saw we missed that. Now we can make a small adjustment, right? So I could, I could spend hours on the planning process and all of the elements, you know, and using it as a leadership tool, but that's the basic gist of it. And so when I bring this to people who I'm working with, okay, and you I, I know you're going to appreciate this, right? So they're in the middle of craziness. Yes. And they'll say, they'll say, Errol, yes, your planning process, it will clearly work, but we don't have time to do it right now because we're just in the middle of this thing. I say, good, no problem. So let me just ask you a quick question before I exit stage, right? If you had done the planning process before you got into the craziness, would you be in the craziness? And the answer is one hundred percent of the time, well, no. So, what are we talking about? There's always a situation. There's always a set of circumstances dictating a need for action. Yours right now is you started this thing with no plan, and now it's falling apart. I hear that. My question, my answer, my question is, what are we going to do about it? Set of circumstances dictating a need for action. Get a plan to get it back on track. That's it. You,
0: you see, I got to tell you, this is where this is. I think where the subtle brilliance of uh, what you've created here with your process really shines because I mean, I know from being in the business world for 25 years, um, I know that, I mean, I can't even count the instances where if I personally had Smack, right? If I personally had this pro- a process for planning, if the company that I was with, or the leader of the company had a process for planning like this. I don't know. Seventy-five percent of the things we undertook, we probably would have never undertook,
1: right? <laughs> and then,
0: and <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you. And then the things that we did undertake would absolutely no doubt have been accomplished. The thing is that I think what what a what a lot. I think what a lot of people miss is that. They, they hate planning I even hate planning we hate planning because what does it really mean to plan right because no one has a process for planning by creating a process for planning you've now created a, a bulletproof blueprint to as you said and you don't even look at it this way to either okay we can undertake the mission because now we' now we feel sure that we have a great chance of succeeding or Hey, we know that we probably don't have a good chance of succeeding. Abandon ship.
1: Right. And, and you're going to identify why. You're going to identify why. Now, here's the other thing about this, right? This sounds, people love smack, okay? But I've got two, two, two fields of thought, right? Um, one is, thank God I have now the elements, it will all go perfectly. And the other is, oh, it's still processed and I, I just hate it it's so confining. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let me just break it to everybody listening. It will not be easy. Okay. You will never, the process is simple. You will never hear me say it's easy. Any of it. It's not. But then my answer is welcome to leadership. (laughs) That's it. Because nobody said leadership, leadership is hard and leadership is hard because the things I've just outlined are hard to do. When I talk to people, Lawrence, The first thing, and it's usually the guys initially, the ladies typically have a better handle on the emotion part, but it's not always. I've talked to guys who said, look, Errol, I've gone through the week and I just, I I may not have emotions. I've actually had more than one people say that to me, more than one person say that to me. I don't even know how to answer that. Like, well, I don't know what to tell you. Yes, you do. The problem is you can't even identify them. Look at this. So don't you think that this is a gap, right? Now we've got, now we're, so again, neat and tidy is not, mission accomplishment is the objective. Neat and tidy is not the objective. Smack will get messy. It's hard to accomplish. It's hard to get people on board. It's hard to remember those meetings. It's hard to, it's hard to do all those things. It's hard to make the adjustments, okay? But Or what? What's your alternative?
0: <laughs> okay, that's right. The, that's the reality. What is that's your alternative? Because what's your
1: alternative? And I say it all the time. What's your alternative?
0: Either, either the, either the process will be hard, right? Either the process that you go through, the actual going through it all will be hard, right. or, the con- or the consequences are going to be a disaster.
1: <laughs> right. One of the, the- <laughs> you choose which one do you want to be hard. Which one? Which one? And it's you know it's 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 yeah.
0: What's the, okay. So then the fifth element is you gotta, you gotta face the resistance. That's right. What's this, what's this resistance we're talking about?
1: Okay. So, um, and I like to be very clear. I, I steal very little of what I do. I st- stole the planning process, right? I, I make no bones a about it. Brilliant planning process. Look, I see how it. do you not? You bring it in. It's, it's what it is. Um, just on a side note, I had somebody at a seminar one time, tell me about the planning process. Um, you know, it's, it's nice arrow but it's a little pie in the sky and that's where I and I came up with the that thing it's born in blood off the cuff because I got a little insulted and I had to go through my own process how does this work everybody that somebody said something to me triggered an emotion mm-hmm. pissed right like what uh, how was I what did I want to react like go to hell man you don't know the people who put this into place and blah 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 but then how do I want to act got you I want to act in control. This is what I do. I'm here to teach people. I'm here to be calm, right? So, boom. So I go through my own process all the time. This is anyway. That's what I told him. I said, "Well, I appreciate that." And I went through the born and blood thing. Um, okay, so that's just a side note. And he got it. He was super cool. He's like, "Ah, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend." I'm like, "You didn't offend. I'm glad you, you said something." And I have now. I have, you have your answer. Um, but in any event, so the resistance, right? I read Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. Uh, which I loved. It's a very quick read. It's very basic. But he talks about the resistance. I take a little different spin on it, but that's where I got the idea from the resistance. Now, my spin on it is this. And this is where the science comes in. Okay. What I found, I built my process first. And then I became obsessed after with how the brain works, how it rewires, all that stuff. And, you know, for behavioral change. And I just, started to do some casual research and reading because it interested me. Mm-hmm. And what I saw was to my delight that the brain, that my leadership process follows the same process the brain uses, the brain and body uses to rewire itself, right? In awesome. short, when we start recognizing emotion, I just, I love to throw this stat out, stat out in the scientific research. We have between 60 and 70,000 thoughts per day. Mm-hmm. 80 to 90% of those thoughts are the same as the day before. Mm -hmm. And for the majority of people, 70% of those thoughts are the thoughts related to stress. Imagine those numbers, even if they're half right. And I imagine they're right because it's based on a study. So we can already predict what we're going to be doing tomorrow based on how we felt yesterday, Mm -hmm. okay? And it's going to be based on an emotion. When we have an emotion, the brain literally sends a chemical to our body. Now we become chemically addicted to that emotion and then the behaviors that surround it. And like any addict, and I don't say this lightly, like any addict who's addicted to drugs, okay, pretty soon they don't care about one line of cocaine. They need two lines of cocaine. And pretty soon they don't care about doing it once a day. They need to do it three times a day. And on and on it goes because they are chemically addicted to that thing. We become chemically addicted to our emotions. So anger, we may not even remember why we were angry. We -hmm. are now addicted to anger. We're going to find anything in our environment to get angry about because we need to satisfy that addiction. Now, okay, that's how the brain works. The research tells us that once we recognize this, just recognizing the emotion alone and then how we become addicted to it starts the process of rewiring our brain. Just to, it's called metacognition, right? It starts the process. Right. And then, once we realize how we continue to behave about it, more metacognition, more realization, more new thoughts, more new experiences, more new wiring. And then, though the brain is very smart, right? Obviously, the brain's not going to do a whole lot until it believes you. And then, once you start identifying now behaviors that you want, The brain is starting to pay attention, right? Because if I'm sitting on the couch and I'm eating chicken wings and drinking beer and watching gladiator for the hundredth time, Mm -hmm. and I say, man, I need to turn my life around, turn up the volume swig, the brain's laughing at you. But if I'm doing that and I go, I need to change my life around, I put everything down and I say, "I I need to act with more discipline in my personal life. The brain's starting to pay attention. Okay. You just said something. You just said a new behavior. And then you put it to a plan. How will I execute this discipline? See smack, now your brain is really paying attention. And as soon as you start executing that plan, it's beginning to rewire itself. Okay, all makes sense, right? This is, it's science, but it's not rocket science. It makes sense, it's the process in play. Now, what is the resistance? Let's understand, if we understand that as fact, what I just said, and let's just believe the scientists who put it together. We're trying to literally rewire our brain. It's hard to do. And if you understand that that's what you're undertaking and you fall off, right? You have a hiccup, Mm -hmm. you make mistakes. You can give yourself a little bit of grace, a little bit of compassion and say, I'm literally trying to rewire my brain. And I just screwed it up. I can just go back, go again, right? I don't, it's not because I don't care. It's not because I'm lazy. It's not because I suck. Mm-hmm. It's because I'm trying to do something really hard. That's the resistance. Now that's the personal resistance. You as a leader are gonna if you put any of this in place, guess what you're doing? You are rewiring brains. Yes, you are changing behaviors. They will just naturally resist it. And if you your people. And if you understand that it's not because they're trying to screw you, it's not because they hate you, it's not because they're trying to make you look bad, you can have a little more grace and patience with them, okay? That's the resistance. If we understand where that resistance comes from and why it's coming, it's okay. We don't have to freak out about it. And that's, that's, the, that's the essence of the resistance.
0: Got it. Got it. You know, you talk about um, metacognition, you talk about becoming aware Right. Becoming aware,
1: aware of okay. what you're aware of, having an emotion about your emotion.
0: Right. And again, you know, this is why your book is so unexpectedly uh, brilliant. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I really found it, it was unexpectedly uh, just really uh, super insightful because you start getting into that, what you just said there, and you throughout the book actually uh, give uh, advice on how to, you know how to become super aware in the moment, how to practice all the elements of the leadership process with a very, very uh, powerful discipline that if you undertake this discipline, which I'm going to mention now, then you'll be able to meet the resistance, You'll be able to lead properly with the team and, and, and follow through with smack in the entire process. You'll be able to look clearly at your emotions. You'll help others be able to see their emotions. And what I'm talking about here is um, so as part of your leadership process, you personally use and teach cold exposure and breathing techniques as tools to identify and practice the art of leadership specifically you use the method created by Wim Hof, who, yeah, who uses cold exposure, breathing, and mindset to transform you physiologically, mentally, and emotionally. Now, I got to tell you, Errol, I find Wim Hof fascinating, as do most people who have watched or listened to any of the interviews he's given, or more so for those who have actually seen the documentary that was made about him uh it was entitled uh the superhuman world of wim hof the Iceman." so f- who is wim hof and this i'm going to wrap up the interview with this yeah. who is wim hof and what does the wim hof method have to do with leadership and your process
1: yeah i i i love wim hof and the wim hof method um Wim Hof, so I'm a certified Wim Hof instructor and I have had, and I got lucky. I was probably the last class that gets certified where he, he did all the certification. He was there. Uh, so I've got to spend a good amount of time with Wim Hof. Not, this is not to say that if Wim Hof passed me on the street, he would recognize me. He probably wouldn't. That said, I've spent a lot of time personally with Wim Hof and I learned the method right from the man. Wow. So Wim Hof, and, you know, he's just, he can't do that anymore. He's got amazing people teaching it. Don't get me wrong. They are awesome, right? But okay. just It's just not him anymore. Um, Wim Hof is, I guess, for lack of a better term, a Dutch extreme athlete. He's got like 25 Guinness Book of World Records for things like standing, being in a tub of ice uh, for two hours without his core body temperature changing. Unbelievable! Uh, for cr- climbing Mount Everest up to the, what do they call it? The death zone, right? He obviously didn't have the tools to peak, but he was right up in that area that everybody dies uh, in a pair of shorts, <laughs> He ra- right. right? He No oxygen tank, right? No pair of shorts. He did it. Uh, he ran a marathon in the desert with no water. Um, he ran a half marathon above the Arctic Circle in bare feet, okay? All of these things that he did now, he was doing these for a purpose, because what he came to realize is that society has become, we have lost our innate ability to heal ourselves, right. and we've lost the ability first and foremost to keep ourselves strong, so we don't even have to heal ourselves. Now, what do we mean by that? We have diet, we have exercise, right, and yet we have people dropping dead of heart attacks, eat right, exercise, so on and so forth. Um, Why is this happening? Well, part and parcel, because really what's killing them is typically stress. Okay. You can't out-exercise the stress. You can't out-diet the stress because the stress will keep coming. Okay. Now, what does breathing and cold exposure do as presented by Wim Hof? What it does is it resets the nervous system. Now, Somebody's out there listening, going, oh no, more of this biohacking. Wim Hof doesn't do anything anymore without a team of scientists following him. They just assumed he was nuts and they started doing tests on him. When he said to scientists, I can control my autonomic nervous system, my innate immune system. They put him to the test with something called the endotoxin test. They basically injected him with a, uh, with a disease, but it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. innate um, or not innate, it's, it's not active, but the body doesn't see it that way. The body sees it as a real, um, uh, uh, predator in in your body. Boy, I'm messing up these words, but anyway, you get it. Um, anyway, he was able to stave off the effects of that endotoxin simply through his breathing technique, because what it did was it was, he was able to regulate his system. Now, what do we, how do we regulate our system? Well, we remove, the inflammation from our system. How do we remove the inflammation from our system, which we know is the key driver to all these diseases? We do it by exercising our physiology. How do we exercise our physiology? When we do his breathing technique, it automatically activates the sympathetic nervous system, right, fight or flight, the adrenaline, right, that's caused by stress, we activate that voluntarily. And then after a period of time doing it, 20 minutes, okay, the body starts to go towards to parasympathetic, the parasympathetic system takes over. Okay, Mm -hmm. now we have physiologically exercised our internal system, our organs, our our cardiovascular system, and we have removed the inflammation from our body. We have reset our nervous system, okay? When we do that every day, inflammation does not get built up. We learn to deal with stress. We eliminate the stress that's been building up. We get to start fresh. And we don't die of things like diabetes, okay? Uh, Alzheimer's related to, to, uh, to inflammation, cancers related to inflammation. That's the first thing. Next thing cold exposure basically does the same thing by strengthening our internal system, okay? Because when we get into the cold, our body reacts appropriately. I could go on for that, but that's generally it, right? Now, how does it apply to the leadership process? Now, I got into the Wim Hof method just because. I thought it was cool, right? And I got introduced to it randomly and I just started to do it. And then I realized, well, holy crap. How do people practice my process? There's gotta be a way to practice this stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Well, I can promise you one thing. Before you step into an ice bath or a cold shower, you're gonna have an emotion. And if your intention before you do it is to recognize that emotion, you are now building the habit of emotional awareness and recognition. So if I tell you for a week, step into a cold shower and ice bath with the intention of identifying your emotions before, during and after that cold exposure, you are now building a habit. Now it's something you do, okay? Now, go on to the next part of the process. Then start being aware of what you do before, during and after the cold, because that will be a mirror into what you do at stressful times in your life, right? Right. Before you get into the ice, are you, Walking around in circles, procrastinating before you do something hard. Are you checking your phone? Are you, let me find those nail clippers because I might have to clip my nails next month. Are you doing everything except getting into the ice bath, right? That's what you do. That's your culture. When you're in the ice bath, are you making a big show of it? Oh, shit. Oh, F. Oh, this. Drama, drama, drama. Or are you trying to catch your breath, doing the things I recommend you do? Because that's your culture. That's what you're doing, right? Same thing going out. Okay. Now you've identified what you do. Now, how do you want to behave? I need to behave with more calm. I need to be less dramatic. I need to be more focused. I need to focus my attention on one thing, my breath, right? That's now a behavior. If you did that behavior everywhere, would you get better? So, and it goes on, make a plan going into the ice bath, right? What's the situation? What's my mission? You can have a million different missions anyway. And on it goes, how do you practice the elements of leadership? Well, you can practice each one of them with the intention each element by stepping into the cold. It's it's foolproof. It is literally foolproof. It's, it's hard. It's 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 absolutely hard. So the leadership benefits are what I just described to you. Maybe someday we'll get on and you know, we'll talk about all the other benefits of the Wim Hof method to deal with stress, to inst- to to strengthen our immune system, which God knows we need these days. But that's I probably went longer than you wanted on that. Oh. No. But, that,
0: but that's it. No, I love it. I love it. That's what I mean. I, that's exactly what I wanted to 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 know. I mean, reading about it in the book, you know, I I got I, you know I got I listened to like every interview Wim Hof did when he first, you know when the Vice documentary first came out. Yep. He was on Joe Rogan, so I listened to that, uh, and you know, I just loved learning about this guy and what he was able to accomplish with his with his method of breathing. And uh, through cold exposure, and I saw, you know, it's in the documentary about the, him getting the endotoxin and turning yep. on his immune system to, to you know, to, to stop it from. Uh, and and then he taught others to do the same thing.
1: That's right. That's right. That's when it became real when he taught. Yeah, and real.
0: and they uh, and this was part of a official study conducted by a university. Yep. So yeah, the science is there but I love the way you use it to practice the leadership process and the way you break it down, because yes, actually you can practice the leadership process and use all of those elements uh, far more confidently, powerfully, uh, and uh, you can execute it in a far more successful fashion. If you get that, that Wim Hof method, right. And I got to tell you, um, you know, you, You got me thinking about doing it. And just the other day, I was, you know, I had a whole bunch of different thoughts hitting me, right? And I'm like, nasal breathing.
1: (laughs) Right, there you go. Focus
0: on the breath. And you know what? Boom. I was, all of that other, all of that other crap, it just dissipated. And I was in the moment. That's right. I was aware. Again,
1: all the science behind what you just said, you know, again, maybe for another day, But it's there. And I I will say this about Wim Hof, you know, for everybody who's watched him, I I can tell you that guy is exactly the same in person as he is on those things. He's not putting on an act anywhere that is he, he is a wild man and he is passionate. He is about this thing. He couldn't care less. If he made a dime on this, all he cares about is, you know, he's he'll take the money now, but only because the money is what's giving him more access and visibility. Right. Right. Uh, So that's all he cares about. I I promise you that's all he cares about. It wasn't until his kids took over the business part. And Mm -hmm. by the way, they are as passionate as he is. They're not just, you know, but they're like, look, dad. (laughs) <laughs> we're going to change the world here. Let's make a buck. Yeah, exactly. It only it only seems fair. And they're right. So they, they run the business aspect of it. Okay. Uh, but they, they care about it just as much as he did. So I, I just wanted to say that he is, there's no act on him. He's genuine. That's what he believes.
0: I'll tell you what, um, this has been a brilliant conversation, fascinating uh, discussion. So, so compelling, Errol. Um, I want to close it out with a quote uh, that I think is a good way to to kind of end the interview uh, from uh, from your book. You say, God will not look you over for medals, degrees, or diplomas, but for scars. Welcome to leadership. Welcome to leadership. So I'll uh, tell you what, thats that says it all right there. Uh, just wonderful, wonderful uh, information that you can use. I, you know, I've, I've got your book now. I, the planning process alone, I can't wait to, you know, to use this stuff. And I implore everyone to learn more about uh, where they can undertake uh, your teaching, your tutelage, and where they can get your book. Why don't you let uh, our audience know the best place to learn more about you, Errol?
1: Yeah, I, I will. And, and Lawrence, thank you for this. This has been, you know, the opportunity to, to really go through the book like we did. I really want to thank you for that. My uh, pleasure. I appreciate it. And I, I certainly hope your audience got something out of it. Um, Leader193, anything Leader193. So my website, Leader193.com, mm-hmm. Facebook, Leader193, Leader Instagram, at Leader193. Facebook and Instagram are my two main um, social media platforms. Uh, you know, you can learn more about how I employ the Wim Hof method, my leadership process uh, on my website. Um, and then we are, if, I, if you don't mind, uh, I don't know when this is coming out, but in February of 2021, I've put on these seminars, obviously, for corporate clients. We're going to start opening it up now to the public, uh, and we'll do our, our, an open one uh, in February. So it, it we're going to okay. have it here in New Jersey. So if you're interested in attending, that'll be a three-day event. We'll employ everything we talked about here uh, and we'll, we'll get real. And so the details will be coming out on our website here probably within the next week or two. So if you're interested in anything like that, um, sign up and then that's where you can find the book as well.
0: That's powerful. Uh, I, I implore everyone that is listening to this, that's watching this uh, to at minimum start with getting your book Uh, it is a powerful tool and you'll get so much out of it more
1: than you expect. Uh,
0: so (laughs) So, Errol, thank you so much for being on the Alpha Human podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Lawrence, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you.